please welcome Father Daniel Heenan. So the, the talk I'm going to give is, um, we, we titled it uh, Cult, Culture, and Conversion. And so uh, a couple of caveats, I'm not going to talk about the Branch Davidians or the Halley's Comet people or anything like that. Cult in the sense of worship uh, and, and the, the way we render worship to God and uh, the obvious connection, even etymolo etymologically, between cult and culture. And specifically, what uh, uh, the importance of cult of worship in conversion. Um, and uh, Colonel Burke recently uh, he said that the liturgy is the most important tool of the new evangelization. And yet, somehow, the liturgy speaks to us, even whether you're whether you're a, a, an intellectual or whether you're a peasant. And this is something that uh, Pope Benedict pointed out in uh, the Motu Proprio Summorum Pontificum in 2007, uh, and, and also um, more elaborately in his, uh, in his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, which makes some references to. He said that there's a way to communicate that transcends words. And actually, this pertains, we all know this, because what, are, what do we sing about? We don't sing generally about mundane things. No, we sing about things that elevate us because mere words don't quite do it. Or when you see a work of art, its attraction to you is that it says something more than just what you see. Or you hear a beautiful piece of box music or, or something. There's a meaning there that can't be expressed in words. And this is part of what uh, the liturgy uh, should uh, do for us. And whatever, whatever form of the liturgy, and I'm not, um, you know, I, I'm not here to make judgments on, on other forms of the liturgy, certainly not. I just speak from my own experience. And it's actually quite a beautiful thing. Deacon Sabatino is mentioning that uh, he's a Greek Catholic. And if uh, this is the beautiful thing about the Catholic Church, that we can have many cultures, right? And these many cultures can all be Catholic cultures, as long as there's something fundamental that unites them all. So I have a few uh, reflections on uh, what, what uh, the nature of, of culture is and uh, uh, worship is and how this can uh, be a great tool, important tool for, for conversion. Um, but the, the, the caveat I want, other caveat I want to give is uh, a lot of the talks you hear at the Institute of Catholic Culture are, are given by great scholars and doctors and whatnot. And, um, uh, you know, this, I don't make any pretense to, to say that the, this is going to be like that. More, uh, I want to take just some of my own reflections and experiences from being a missionary for a short time in a foreign culture, a Catholic culture. And this is something interesting because most of us don't know what that really is. We can think about it in a theoretical fashion, but it's, it's one thing to say, eh, it'd be nice to have a Catholic culture. But what does that mean? You have to live it. You have to see what it is. And I'm still new at it. I don't really know what it is either because I didn't grow up on it. But to meet people and see how if the Catholic faith permeates everything you do and what does that look like? And this should be in fact what we, we all desire and what are some obstacles to that? So um, this is uh, you know not meant to be uh, a doctoral thesis but um, you know um, just uh, some, some sort of random reflections I hope I can tie together. And it was really great to talk about culture, uh, cult right after we have this beautiful liturgy. 
you know, this is, I miss this, uh, not being in the seminary, because we would do this every Sunday uh, and every feast day at the seminary, and then you get out and you, you're working in the parish, and we don't have the resources to do it nearly so nicely. Um, but uh, the music is sublime, right? And it lifts you up, and it, it, it should make you think of transcendent things. And isn't this part of the, the, what uh, liturgy and culture are supposed to do? Uh, and it connects us with our past, right? Culture is not something just for one generation. It's passed across generations and shared by a group of people. And uh, part of it is a collective memory, right? Remembering where we've come from. And some people like to talk about progress, but really liturgy should be a remembering or a, 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 a going back to the origins. Because in a certain sense, that's exactly what the Christian life is, is about, right? It's about going, going back to the, the pristine state, but better. And, and in our gospel uh, today, um, this, this uh, Sunday, uh, um, well, in the extraordinary form, we have the uh, account of the multiplication of the loaves, and this is a, presages the, the, the gift of the Eucharist, where we see our Lord desires not just to satisfy us, but to satisfy us over and above. And they had to collect all the fragments, lest any be lost. And so this is what our Lord wants, wants to do for us, and, and he wants to do uh, not just for us as individuals, but as, as, as a people, collectively. You know, the Protestant idea is we are saved individually, right? It's me and God, and that's, that's it. But what our Lord actually wants to do is he wants to transform us as, as a society so that, the, that, that his reign, will, the reign of Christ our King, is manifested in everything we do. In, 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 as a society. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and uh, the, uh, the, the fifth hymn, or the fifth psalm we sang at, at Vespers, interestingly, uh, in terms of uh, connecting us with our past, they tell us that that tone, that we sang that, that uh, in, in uh, Exito de, de Egipto, is actually derived from a, a tone that was commonly used to sing in the temple. So not only are we singing Gregorian chant that brings us back at least to the 5th century, right? But, but uh, scholars say that, these, that certain of these tones actually were sung in the temple. So our Lord himself might have sung that psalm, not only those words, but in that, that, that very tone, right? So that's, that's something to think about. And I heard, uh, I was listening to the radio the other day, and I heard um, this Catholic radio station, and they were doing this uh, feature on a Protestant preacher in Mexico, or a singer, a pop, pop singer, who uh, decided that he would, have, uh, he would begin his shows with Gregorian chant. And the stage would be dark and lit with candles and incense. And so they asked him, well, why are you doing this? Aren't you a Protestant? And he says, well, you know, this brings us, it gives us a sense of antiquity and the history of Christianity. And it's good for us to remember, although we've moved beyond that. You know, Gregorian chant is, is very simple, and we have more complex and, and better tones to praise the Lord with now. So he was right in the first part that it does bring us back, but he's wrong in, uh, in another sense. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, uh, you know, a couple of interesting things um, to uh, 
as I was saying, about um, seeing what a Catholic culture looks like. And I'm going to, uh, on the handout you have, you have um, some uh, charts I gave you. Um, and, and one of the points I want to make is that although there is a Catholic culture in Latin America, the Spanish Catholic culture, uh, Latin American Catholic culture, it's under a grave threat. And you can see that even 20 years ago, countries that were almost ex exclusively Catholic, there's some that are now less than half Catholic. Something has been lost. But even one of the advantages of working where I am is even in those sorts of situations, there's still something. There's still a soil needs to be tilled, but there's beautiful uh, little things. There's, there's funny things. Uh, I don't know if it necessarily has to do with Catholic culture, but little things I learn as an American, like uh, uh, interesting words, like I found out and, uh, that, uh, uh, anybody speak Spanish here? You know, the word, you know what the word for handcuff is in Mexico? Wife. <laughs> it is. I just started laughing when they told me that. I said, you seriously? Yeah. Okay. Um, but, yeah, esposa. An esposa is a handcuff. So, yeah. Um, but um, the other day, I was, um, I was in a convenience store. And... Um, a man was watching me because uh, not a lot of priests, almost no priests, wear a, a cassock in Mexico anymore. Even though in Guadalajara there are many, many priests, but um, through their persecutions and whatever, they've, they've never started wearing the cassock again. But anyway, so someone was staring at me, which happens, and uh, I came out of the, the uh, convenience store and he says, are you a priest? I said, yes. He said, are you the kind that says mass? I said, yes. <laughs> He said, uh, can I have a blessing? I said, sure. So I gave him a blessing. He really needed a blessing. He said, I've been looking all over for a priest to give me a blessing. He was 2 o'clock on a Monday afternoon. You need a blessing. You need a blessing. So I gave him a blessing in Latin. And he says, Father, was that Latin? I said, yes. He says, have you heard of the Tridentine Mass? I said, as a matter, as a matter of fact, I say it every day. And he said, oh, Father. He said, I mean no disrespect. I think we should all do this because that's what they did a long time ago. That's what our ancestors did. I said, yeah, that's interesting. And when I was coming here, I was uh, passing through the airport and they, you know, scanned my bags and uh, the, they said, um, they had to search one of my bags and they said, um, do you have a metal tube in your bag? I said, a metal tube? And I, I said, no. And they start looking. I said, oh, yeah, I have my holy oils. So I pull out my oil stock and it's in a little leather case and uh, I said, yeah, it's right here, but it's the holy oils. I said, oh, sorry, sorry, yeah, go ahead, you know, without even looking at it. So little, little, uh, little things like that. And uh, one other thing is um, they also have this custom of always kissing the priest's hand. And um, this is a little awkward for an American to get used to, or don't usually, people don't usually kiss my hand. But um, they do there, especially the more traditional-minded people and the old people that want to, in the general public, the custom is being lost. But in our parish, they, uh, you know, if the kids don't do it, they, they get scolded and they have to come back and I have to stand there while these little kids. <laughs> but I was traveling to, for the first time back to the U.S. and um, I was joking around with some of the youth and I said, you know, I, I'm starting to get used to this here, but I hope I don't go back to the U.S. and offer everybody my hand like this, you know. <laughs> They'll think I'm weird. And she says, she says to me, Father, 
we're not, we're not kissing your hand. We're kissing Christ's hand. Oof, ouch, touche. <laughs> Um, but it's things like that. This is, uh, see, the nature of, of culture, and we can come up with all kinds of uh, different uh, definitions depending on what point of view you're, you're coming at it from, but culture is really the collective uh, set, set of behaviors and, and way of thinking um, and a, a shared history uh, of, of a people. Um, and it's a, way of, it's a way of expressing themselves and uh, in a good culture, all these things should be a reminder of where we're going, right? So one of, the, one of the very important questions, not just for culture, but for everything, is what's the purpose of it all, right? And this is a question that people don't like to ask anymore because it's too hard to think about the answer or you don't want to know what the consequences are. But the purpose of culture uh, just like the purpose of, of, of everything we do ultimately, right? If we know a little bit of philosophy, we know that there's, there's got to be a final cause. And the final cause of all, of, of everything, is God. And so the relationship between culture and cult, uh, the word culture comes out of that very word, that it's everything that grows out of the way we worship because the way we worship indicates to us what, what we're all about. It reminds us of ultimate things, right? And it keeps our mind ever focused on where we're going. And so, you know, we all, we have jobs and we have other occupations, but God set it up that we have to come and worship him at least once a week to make sure our compass is pointed in the right direction. And we lose something. It's hard to speak about a culture if we don't have the same cult, right? Because we might all be going in different directions. I was on the, on the way over here. I, 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 was, um, I drove up from Richmond where I was doing some fundraising um, and uh, I was getting drowsy. And so I turned on the radio and uh, uh, some people to get themselves riled up, you know, might turn on rock music. I turn on NPR. <laughs> and they were, they were talking about, uh, it just so happened they were having a religious segment. And uh, particularly because I, I, I didn't know this, shame on me, it's, it's uh, Women's History Month or something like this. It's always a month of something. But uh, they were, so they were talking about feminist theology. Oh, that's interesting. And they had a Catholic and a Jew women talking about Catholic uh, or about feminist theology and how we need to reinvent, reinvent our concept of God to account more for the uh, woman's point of view. And the, the interviewer asked, well, what do you do with women who uh, are, are, want to preserve the traditional, traditional theology and are quite content with uh, the traditional views of, of men and women? I said, well, there really aren't any of them. <laughs> or even where they are, they really, deep down, they're really fermenting for this. They really, you know, they really want this. But, but in order to push their cause, interestingly, they're creating rituals, right? Because rituals uh, inculcate things in us. And so if they want to create a new uh, ideology, you create a new liturgy 
or they didn't call it a liturgy, but they called it ritual. So they're, they're inventing blessings for this and this and this. And it's very enriching, they said. And then they had this other guy come, coming on there, and he was a, a former Southern Baptist, and he was uh, saying that he, he left the Southern Baptist because um, he didn't think that, uh, that um, their theology promoted the right political causes. <laughs> and so it, this was providential that I was listening to this on the way down here to give this talk because it all kind of goes together because what is our view of liturgy? What do we think of our relationship to God and the way we're supposed to worship him and what effect this has on culture, right? Is, is liturgy something we invent or is liturgy something we receive? And in fact, if we look at St. Thomas, St. Thomas uh, tells us that the, the, the best, the most important way of knowing for us as, as human beings, as rational animals, is to receive, right? This is contemplation. This is the beatific vision. We don't go out and get the beatific vision. It's, it, it's given to us. And it's such a gift. It's such a gift that if, 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 uh, you know, if we, we, uh, we make it and we pass through purgatory and we, we, we get through the pearly gates, God's going to give us the lumen gloriae. He's going to give us another special grace so that we can behold him, not according to our own mode, but according to his mode. So that's how, that's how grand, that's how overabundant God's love for us is, is that he doesn't just want us to know him, but he wants us to know him as he knows him. Right? So then our whole journey in this life has to be an imitation of this, right? A preparation for this. We don't reconstruct God on our, our own image. No, we're preparing ourselves to receive. And we have to, we have to uh, make ourselves, we have to dispose ourselves for this, this receptivity. And so there's a wisdom to why the, the saints, the mystics, always speak about the soul as feminine, the receptive principle, that God's love is infused into us and we receive him insofar as we, we empty ourselves and make ourselves uh, 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 receptacles for, for his grace. And uh, so um, there's, uh, you know, in, in preparing this, I looked at a number of different, uh, different sources. As I mentioned, um, uh, Pope Benedict's uh, book on the liturgy. If you haven't read that, uh, it's, I think it's really essential reading for anybody who is uh, concerned about worshiping God as in, with the right dispositions and also uh, interested in restoring culture uh, because if, I want, if you come away at the end of my talk with anything, it's to understand that if we want to restore culture, we need to take liturgy seriously. We need to worship God in the right way. Uh, and, and he's a brilliant scholar. Uh, another interesting scholar I looked at, um, and I, I didn't have time to read the whole book, but um, it's uh, interesting, um, and I recommend it from what I did re read, is a, a scholar by the name of James K.A. Smith, and he's written a three-volume work on the relationship of liturgy and culture. So right, uh, pertaining exactly to this, um, although he's a Protestant, he's an evangelical, and I think that, that, that um, hinders his, his argument in certain important aspects. But one of the things he says is that our, 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 our culture, our secular culture, if you can speak of it, and it's really only by equivocation that we can speak of a, a, a secular culture, 
Although um, Pope Benedict and, and Joseph Pieper, who's another person who who's, uh, speaks about culture a lot, uh, he's got a book called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. He says that, that we have this, this need to worship God, to worship something, is so ingrained in us that we actually, if we don't have a real uh, cult, we invent new cults. And so uh, secularism has its own cults. And this is one of the things that uh, James, Professor James Smith says. He, he actually gives an interesting analogy of a mall as a sort of secular cathedral with all its little chapels and its iconography. And the interesting point he makes is that, um, that culture is not just a matter of uh, intellectual principles. This is important. We need to study and we need to know our faith. But it's also an effective, with an A, effective training, right? So it, 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 it manipulates our desires and wants us to love something. And in this case, it wants us to love materialism. It wants us to love the latest fashion, right? And so people get obsessed in it. And he says, you know, they, they don't put windows in malls, right? So you lose track of time and you get totally absorbed. And this also, right, there's a similar sort of effect if you've ever, if, when you've had the chance to, uh, to partake of a beautiful liturgy. Remember the first time I discovered, well, actually, the first time I discovered the traditional mass, I didn't like it at first. The first time I went to a solemn high mass, and there was the choir from Christendom was singing there. Anthony Smith was probably in it, probably singing. Uh, the solemn high mass. And they were singing uh, William Byrd or something. And so, something sort of clicked. And uh, they were singing something. And I'm like, I don't want it to end. Keep going, keep going. I could stay here forever. And uh, people commented to me, if you were at the, the, my ordination in June, it was almost four hours long. And I... I I didn't know what people thought about it, or some people were new to the traditional mass, I, so I, I was sort of trying to gauge the response. I'm like, oh yeah, it was pretty long, it was Ember Day, seven readings. And like, I looked at my watch, and I said, it could not have been four hours. It didn't feel like four hours. But right, that's the sign of a good liturgy, in the sense that it's taking us out of time, and that has the effect of reminding us where, our, where we're going, which is, which is into eternity. And so then the, the, the various cultural practices grow, grow out of that, and then they support that, right? So, so like in Mexico, um, we, we, they, they love processions, and um, so we have processions as much as, as we can, and, and even the people that haven't set foot in a church in years they come out of their shops and they bless themselves and they want to touch the image and they, they want to help clean up the flower petals that were thrown on the street. And we had this, the, the procession of Our Lady of Zapopan, which I'm sure you've never heard of. But it's the, it's the patronal image uh, of Our Lady. Beautiful history. Look it up. Uh, uh, patroness of Guadalajara and Jalisco. And so she visits all the churches at different times of the year, and it's, it's a, like a movable feast day. When she comes, it's a first-class feast because she's there. And they lay uh, alfalfa and, and, and rose petals on the street. They put banners up, and they stop all the traffic. There's a military band. And then if we want to have a procession for, you know, whatever reason we want, you know, we, can, we don't have to call the police or whatever to stop the traffic. We just, you know, have somebody standing there, right? And, and the buses all stop and no one complains and everything because they know this is part of who they are. 
So much so that you, I don't, you probably never see this here, but the 7-Elevens have crucifixes in them. <laughs> right? But, but there's a very severe lack of catechesis at the same time. And um, uh, before I end, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my, my project. And so uh, this, is, this is what happens when uh, uh, the, 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 the cult aspect, the religious aspect fails. The culture hangs on for a while, right? And it's hoping to get that back, its foundation back, right? But people don't understand why they're doing these things. It's not uncommon amongst my parishioners or people that I, that I meet to find people who pray their rosary every day and do their, all their novenas but haven't been to Mass in years. What's gone wrong? Maybe, may, maybe uh, we need to re revisit the question of, of liturgy and, and what the church is doing and whether it's doing its job of sustaining this, this beautiful culture. Right? So... Um, uh, you know, along the lines of, of what I saw, James, uh, Professor Smith, um, another, there's a number of scholars have said the same sort of thing, understanding that we are both body and soul, intellect and will. We need to take all these things into account. There's a, there's a, a, um, a philosopher by the name of James Taylor, not the singer, uh, who wrote a book <laughs> called Poetic Knowledge, and he says that the key to restoring culture uh, is to an education that, that takes the will and the passions into effect. There's a poetic, we, you know, we need to stimulate, we need to teach us what we're supposed to love. Again, going back to liturgy, right? If, if, if we're worshiping God in the right way, then our loves are, are pointed in the right direction. You know, if we have other priorities, if we're like those people I heard on NPR, and we think that liturgy is subordinated to some cause, and even this Professor Smith seems to be making this same error because he starts out with what kind of culture do we want? So let's create a liturgy that reinforces that. But it works the other way around. Pope Benedict points out in his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, that uh, right from the Old Testament we see that uh, the purpose of the Exodus, right, is what? If you saw the Charlton Heston movie, you're going to get the wrong idea. I got, I, got, I got to admit, I got this from, from Deacon Sabatino's brother. He was our, our scripture professor in the seminary. But he always liked to point this out, so I give him his due. But what, what, was, what, was, the main, what was the purpose of the Exodus? Why, did, why was, was Moses demanding that they be set free? To do what? To worship God. And to worship Him in a specific way. Right? It was non-negotiable. Pharaoh was trying to negotiate and said, well, you know, some of you can go, but not all of you. He said, no, God said this way. You know, well, why don't you just worship your God here? No, God said this way. And so he was showing us that uh, we, you, need to, you need to worship God according to what God dictates. And they only entered into the promised land after the covenant was made that included all these, these mandates for how they were supposed to worship God. The dwelling place of God among men, the, the tabernacle that would go with them in the desert. Then they were prepared to inherit the land. Then they could build their culture when they had worship of God right. When they had the covenant right. And when they, when, they, when they strayed from that, what happened? 
They were sent into exile. They were defeated in battle. You know, this Solomon, you know, started, it says, started going out. He, he married all these wives and he started going after their gods and setting up temples, right? And so then they, then they were punished for it. Their, their culture, their society couldn't survive when the worship of God wasn't done right. Another scholar who speaks about culture, uh, yeah, culture in general is a man by the name of uh, priest Father Edward Lean, also highly recommend, great spiritual writer, but also wrote about ed education, one of my favorite spiritual writers, very Thomistic, but he has a great point. He says, for us, for whom wisdom now has a name, education can be nothing other than a continual process of conversion. Right? So it's understanding education, which is what culture is doing. It's educating us in, in uh, more than just an intellectual way. We can only understand it as part of our journey towards uh, to, of, of sanctity, because that's the, that's the goal of it all, right? And so if truth, if God is truth, then, then what are we wasting time with if, if our learning is not aiding us in knowing Christ better? It, 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 it's worthless. And uh, along those lines as well, G.K. Chesterton, you know, um, going back to this need for the, the effective aspect of, of how we, we educate ourselves, he says, the insane man is not the one who has lost his reason. Rather, the insane man is the one who has lost everything but his reason. So uh, to have a right understanding of uh, who we are. Uh, is part, an important part of culture. Um, and not all cultures are equal, right? So uh, there's, in Mexico, they've sadly, um, uh, the, ever f since they gained their independence in one way or another, uh, but the, these, the secular influence, Masonic influence has been uh, working there. And you know, so now they, they have this idea they want to re, re Re gain, gain an appreciation for their, their indigenous culture, right? But, but if we think about it, like, and sometimes, you know, historians will say, oh, those, those, those terrible Spaniards, they ruined the culture of those Aztecs. If only we were still ripping out hearts and eating them. Life would just be so good here. But no, we can, we can evaluate a culture. We can evaluate actions and behaviors and customs insofar as they conduce us to our final end, or they don't. And so, um, the, uh, <clears throat> when, when we're thinking about what's most important for a culture, uh, Joseph Pieper, uh, another uh, philosopher uh, that um, recommends, wrote a book called uh, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, and another one called A Theory of Festivity. And he says, the, the, the most important thing for restoring culture is to have uh, uh, an understanding of a proper sense of leisure. And in a certain sense, that's obvious, right? I, I remember a, um, a professor saying that, that um, culture really developed in places where they grew grapes and they grew olives because they take a long time to grow, right? So you have to stay put for a long time. Then you have time to think about things. Right? So then you can start to draw, uh, make art, and, and write, and all this. And that's, that's very true. But in our culture, when we think of leisure, we think of uh, watching, the, watching the football game, which is okay. I like watching football too. But, uh, but in, in the truest sense of the word, leisure is, is uh, what disposes us for this receptivity 
of receiving God. It's, it's, it's a practice of contemplation, right? So it should be elevating the spirit, and it should be disposing us for those most important things. And in our society, we've got it all backwards, because sometimes we think leisure is for the sake of work. But Pieper says, no, actually, work is for the sake of leisure. And, of course, the whole communist, or, or actually since the French Revolution, they've tried to reinvent that, invert it, and, and define us in terms of our, our, our ability to work and our economic output. And, you know, arguably make the assertion that this, this actually stems, stems out, of, out of Protestantism, ultimately, because it, 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 puts, it, it, it puts the emphasis on what man decides Okay, it takes it out of, uh, the faith is not something we receive, but it's something we sort of can create for ourselves and then manipulate according to this or that p political uh, end. And then it also disintegrates that unity of culture, right? As I said at the beginning, if we're all worshiping in different ways, which we as Americans are very accustomed to, but in other parts of the world, they're not so, so accustomed to that, then we can't have a culture. I was in Colombia, and they have this beautiful corpus Christie celebration. It's a national holiday. And even there, you know, it's been corrupted because they have the religious celebration and then they have all these signs that says Corpus 2012. And it had like silhouettes of dancing people, you know, and they, I saw the biggest beer pyramid, like cans of beer. And I love, uh, beer's good, right? Beer, beer is part of a, of a good culture, right? You need time to brew a good beer. But this was beer companies sponsoring the Corpus Christi celebration. So it was the religious part and, the, and then the secular corruption of it. But um, some people were talking to me, and in this town of about 10,000 people, they, they got their first Protestant church. There were about 300 people. The, the pastor was American-trained and had a really nice car and went back to the States all the time to get, I don't know, retrained or something. But he, they, someone said... I said, I need to ask you a question, right? You have Protestants in your country, don't you? I said, yes. He said, what do you do about them? <laughs> but, but the reason it was so distressing is because when they had this Corpus Christi procession, some people didn't take their hats off. Right? So this, this is uh, a sign of, of something that's healthy still there in a the culture. Um, there's... Uh, a lot more I could say about this, but uh, I think I'm about out of time here. So just um, uh, something, um, you know, Pope Francis uh, also, I think, said something about that, that goes with what I want to say as well, that uh, he said something. We need to restore a sense of awe to, to the way we celebrate the liturgy. And that is a very good point. We do need to uh, restore a sense of awe. Now, ru ru uh, fidelity to the rubrics is not in contradiction to a, to a sense of awe, but it can, it, it, it can forget about that. But for me as a priest, it, you know, I laid down on the floor, and that was, symbolized my death to, this, to the world and my living for Christ. And in a, in a sense, every time I celebrate Mass, I'm trying to do the same thing. Empty myself and give myself over to what God gave to me. So much so that in the traditional liturgy, when you consecrate, the priest lays himself on the altar, right? And uh, God bless you all. <clears throat>